Hello, and <laughs> welcome to the Sound of History podcast. <laughs> My name is Nick. I'm Mika. <laughs> and this is a music history podcast where I attempt to teach my wife music history. Who's learning more and more each week episode. Yes. <laughs> Trying to do weekly. We'll see how that goes. Holy gee, everybody. <laughs> I can't believe we're here. <laughs> Round two. Bod Bell. Mystery yep. Machine. Musicals. It's not, not Mystery Machine. There's nothing Mystery Machine about this. Follow the ham. <laughs> just, again, before we get started, I just want to remind everyone to follow our social media accounts. Facebook.com slash Sound of History. Twitter.com slash Sound of History with an underscore. And also, give us, a, give us a rating. Give us a review on iTunes and Spotify. Let us know what you think. Keep that good feedback coming. Yes, we like it. All right, in the last episode, we talked about vaudeville. You want to give us a brief recap what vaudeville actually was? Follow the ham. Musicals, mystery machine. I was gonna say scantily clad women, but really it was just For very, very clad women <laughs> undressing by taking off their stockings. At the time, that was in, pretty in scandalous. In all seriousness, um, Bodbill, um is a. Um, it's like a, a a structure of like a random assortment of different types of acts that they would put on where they would do comedy and then they'd do little plays and they'd have characters. And I'm sorry, my phone is not on vibrate. So unprofessional. So sorry. We are um, a professional podcast. Yeah. Here. Everyone believes that. Um, and it was the, um, the more white collar, bring your kids, bring your wife, type of entertainment way. and then everything uh got a little bit uh more risque because no one likes rules <laughs> and um yeah yeah that's good <laughs> i mean the main point it was all over the place what are you talking about I mean, that's what vaudeville is all over the place yeah the main I'm point is theme. that there's a collection of theaters all owned by a certain like manager or managers and they have acts that tour through the circuits. Did I They're say the circuits. tour thing? I don't know. Did I, don't I, think I so. not get to the tour thing? <laughs> I don't think so. I know about that. And that is the most important part because today we're talking about the Orpheum circuit and Martin Beck. Those are two of the... It's the Orpheum circuit is probably the largest circuit in vaudeville and Martin Beck was... He didn't found it, but he was in charge of it during its heyday. The most important people in vaudeville were probably Keith and Abby, the two we talked about. Right. Yeah. But we talked about them a fair bit last week. And I think it's more fun to look at other people. So we're focusing on the Orpheum circuit instead, which wasn't them. They had nothing to do with the Orpheum circuit for most of the time. Cool. In 1848, Gustav Walter was born in, oh boy. Just commit. Osterode, Germany. Osterode. sounds right to me. All right. He was the youngest of 17 children. Dear goodness. In a family that had long ties to the small town as leather workers. Like his dad was a leather worker. His granddad was a leather worker. They all just stayed in the same town in Germany. Sounds pretty cool. As a young man, Gustav left to be a merchant in Bremen. But he quickly got bored of the dull routine of merchant's life and decided to try his luck in America. So in 1865, he arrived in New York and worked for some time with Fuchs and Hubner which is a flower and provisions dealer. That sounds like a lot more fun. I love that it's a dealer, <laughs> a flower dealer. I don't know. I just think that's funny. 
1874, he traveled to San Francisco, where he started to work as a bookkeeper for a carpet dealer. You got another dealer. Carpet dealer? Yeah. In 1880, Gustav opened his very first theater, which was called The Fountain on Kearney Street. When this proved to be pretty successful, he opened a couple more theaters, Vienna Gardens and the Wigwam Variety Hall. Cool. But in 1886, he opened what would be his pride and joy, the Orpheum. Its first show was on June 30th, 1887. Apparently, the very first show was Rosner's Electric Orchestra, which was brought from Hungary for about $6,000, which in today's money is around $150,000. The theater sat... 3,500 people, and it soon became the leading vaudeville theater in the West. Good for him. Gustav would charge five cents for a seat in the balcony and up to 50 cents for a box, which were really low prices for the time. That sounds like a good night of entertainment. (laughs) It drew a large crowd because of the scaled ticket prices. It wasn't just like one single entry price for everyone, like sort of like how you would think about it now. You get you pay five cents for a crap seat, 50 cents for the best seat, and then everything in between. I wish I could pay five cents for a seat. And it was also the only theater that was open late at night with shows running until 2 a.m. Ooh. So this led to the Orpheum becoming the biggest vaudeville theater in San Francisco, and then eventually the West in general. Despite all of the success, Gustav was in terrible debt. He had a habit of overspending for top acts from Europe. He would pay for acts like the Parisian Ballet or a Hungarian military band. That sounds so cool, though. It he does. just wants to have people experience yeah. the art. Gustav seems like a guy who's more interested in like the actual performance than making money on it. Who cares about the money? I mean, probably the people he owes debts to and stuff. They probably have enough. The combination of expensive acts and low ticket prices meant that Gustav had to lease the theater and its management to a guy named John Court in 1891. But because of the financial panic of 1893, Court only lasted two years before he had to rehire Gustav as the Orpheum's manager, with the financial backing of a guy named Morris Meyerfield, who was a cigar manufacturer and liquor salesman. That's a good kind of guy to have on board (laughs) in the entertainment industry. Yeah, and apparently he was really rich because he was able to, like, financially support the Orpheum and Gustav. Meyerfield handled the business and financial side of the Orpheum while Gustav focused on booking talent, which seems to be, like... Sounds like a great partnership. Exactly. It seems to be what Gustav wanted, and hopefully he won't be in debt this time. The partnership was incredibly successful, and the shows were often sold out. Because of this success, Meyerfield wanted to open additional Orpheum theaters, and his sights first set on Los, An- Los Angeles in 1894. San Francisco was geographically separated from the rest of the country, so it was expensive and difficult to get top acts all the way there. With more theaters nearby, they could promise more shows. And that was the start of the famous Orpheum circuit. So basically, like, acts don't want to go all the way out just to do one show in San Francisco. So if they open other theaters around the area, then it's like, well, no, you can go do ten shows in all these different cities. Very profitable. Exactly. They continued to expand, and in 1898, they opened to a sold-out crowd in Kansas City, Missouri. Wow. Three months later, on May 9th, Gustav died of appendicitis. Oh, no! Yeah, poor Gustav. Appendicitis, man rough back then i'm sure according to his obituary he had been ill but four days and death was farthest from his fears until the very last that is so sad (laughs) gustav seems like a good guy oh i'm so sorry gustav convinced that operations had to continue because it was successful meyerfeld 
that convinced Martin Lehman, the owner of the Los Angeles Theater, to become his new partner. The two then took over or built new theaters in Omaha, Nebraska, and Denver. With these five theaters, they officially had an Orpheum circuit. This wasn't quite enough for them, though, so they made a deal with an association of theater owners based out of Chicago. Lehman moved to Chicago to set up operations there, and they hired Martin Beck to take over booking operations for the circuit. With this structure in place and the backing of the Theater Association in Chicago, they were well on their way to dominating vaudeville in the West. Martin Beck was born into a Jewish family on July 31st, 1868, in a town in northern Slovakia that I won't even try to pronounce the name of. Do it. I don't do even it. have it written because oh. I knew <laughs> I was not going to want to pronounce the name Quitter. of it. Oh, for sure. I'm not afraid to admit I gave up even trying on that one. He joined a troupe of actors on an ocean liner and worked his way through Bremen, Germany, which was where Gustav worked as a merchant. Connections. Yeah. And eventually it landed in the U.S. in May of 1884. Soon after landing, he was stranded when his vaudeville troupe disbanded and he started to work as a waiter in a Chicago beer garden. That doesn't happen so to actors. They all got there and then the troupe was like, we don't want to do this anymore. And he's like, oh, well, now I'm just in Chicago. So, now, yeah, now he's in a beer garden. There's not a lot of information about his early years. I guess people aren't that interested in what he was doing before, like... Waiting tables. <laughs> yeah, before he, like, rose to what he would become. But in the early 1890s, Beck traveled to San Francisco with the Schiller Vaudeville Company. In San Francisco, he met the owners of the Orpheum Theater and was hired to help them expand operations and open new theaters. It became Beck's mission to make the Orpheum Circuit bring the highest forms of art within reach to the people with the slimmest purses. I like these guys. Yeah, that I was, am that was so a direct quote, by the this. way. Nice. In 1901, Mayor Field and Beck met with Keith and Abby. Remember them? Yep. Yep. Holy G guys. Holy G. They dominated vaudeville in the East, and the two groups met to discuss uniting vaudeville theaters across the country. In May, they signed the Vaudeville Managers Association papers, which were designed to eliminate harmful competition, and it centralized the vaudeville empire. It divided the country into two wings, east and west. It allowed performers to travel along prearranged circuit paths that united the whole country instead of just their individual ones. Board members would meet to judge talent and book performers, as well as decide on salaries. All in all, it seemed like a great deal for everyone involved. It kept Orpheum out of the East, and it kept Keith and Albie out of the West, and it kept vaudeville performers gainfully employed with easy access to the whole country. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It was a very, like, utilitarian arrangement they had. By 1906, the Western Wing of the Vaudeville Managers Association included more than 60 theaters. So that was the Orpheum side. Mm -hmm. They had over 60 theaters. That's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. I mean, I guess the U.S. is pretty big. Yeah. But like and especially, like, divided along East and West. Like, East is... Probably east of the Mississippi is what they had. So, like, I feel like there's a lot most more land out west. west. But most of the big cities are in the east, especially at this point. So, mm. I don't know. It might be a pretty fair divide. In 1899, a 25-year-old Harry Houdini was considering retirement. What? He had struggled for five years and gotten nowhere as a performer. But Martin Beck and a few other theater managers saw his performance in St. Paul, Minnesota, and they loved it. After escaping from some handcuffs that Beck brought him, Houdini received this telegram from Beck. You can open Omaha March 26th, $60. We'll see act, probably make you proposition for all next season. Houdini wrote on the bottom of that telegram, this wire changed my whole life's journey. Beck booked Houdini throughout the Western Circuit for years. 
This new alliance with Keith and Abby in the East meant that acts like Houdini were able to travel the entire country performing. Without Beck, it is possible no one would ever remember Houdini. That is so crazy. Houdini's brother said that though many people took credit for Harry's career, Beck was the person who was the most responsible for it. That is awesome. Well, I mean, I mean, other than Houdini. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, Houdini was struggling for five years and getting nowhere. So it's possible that, like, despite his talent, he just would have went unnoticed unless Beck happened to see him in St. Paul. Thank you, Beck. By 1909, Beck had opened Orpheum Circuit Theaters in Memphis, Birmingham, Atlanta, and Salt Lake City, among other cities. That seems, well, I guess that's west. It still seems pretty east, though. Wow. Yeah. Because, like, Memphis is on the east side of the Mississippi. So is Atlanta. So, like, I don't know. I don't know what their deal was. Geography is stupid. Who cares? In 1911, they began to expand into Canada with theaters in Edmonton, Calgary, and Winnipeg. But all of this wasn't enough for Beck. He he always wanted to just keep expanding the Orpheum's power. I don't blame him. (laughs) He became obsessed with building a large Orpheum theater in New York and started to plan the palace. That seems like it won't go over well with the other guys. (laughs) Especially since he started planning the palace right up the street from the Victoria, which was owned by Albie. Also, he wanted to start an Orpheum circuit in the East, which was completely against the agreement they had made a few years earlier with the Eastern Theater. You were doing so good. As you can expect, tension started to boil between the East and the West. In 1911, Beck finally purchased land in Times Square and started to build the Palace Theater. Dude, there's so much land in the West. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not New York. Yeah. I mean, Taylor Swift would never go. (laughs) With the Orpheum now having an interest in a few New York City theaters, a new arrangement had to be made. So they didn't just have the palace. They also had a couple other theaters. Oh, goodness. So Albie, Beck, and Mayerfield signed a new, essentially, treaty. Because of this agreement, Albie thought he should have a controlling piece of the palace, and he threatened legal action against Orpheum. Thinking that his professional relationship with Albie was more important than the palace, Mayerfield sold his shares, meaning that Keith and Albie controlled 51% of the palace, while Beck held on to 25%. So in effect... Beck built his arch rivals their most prominent and successful theater. (laughs) Dude, just stay in your lane. Exactly. Like, he got too greedy. The palace became the pinnacle of vaudeville. You remember from last week how there were, like, three tiers of vaudeville, small, medium, and big time? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. This big time? Oh, yeah. This is big, big time. The palace was the height of big time. If an act performed at the palace, they had made it and were some of the most successful vaudeville performers. So the palace had this, like, almost mythic feeling about it. It was legendary. It's what everyone wanted to perform in and where everyone wanted to see a performance. As a theater manager, it's like the best you can hope for. And Beck built that for his rivals. <laughs> Lord. That's just an example of don't get greedy or, you know, honored agreements you make. The Palace Theater is still operational today, and it's one of the biggest Broadway theaters. Have we been? No. The most recent show at the Palace was the SpongeBob musical. Oh, nope. <laughs> we didn't go to that one. But the theater has been closed since September 2018 for renovations. Oh. It's expected to reopen in 2021. Let's go. It's also apparently haunted by the ghost of an acrobat who fell to his death in the 1950s. Heck yeah. But actually, the acrobat only had a minor injury from that fall, and he <laughs> went on to lo- live another 10 to 15 years before Surely dying in Pennsylvania. Surely someone else died in there, though. Like, <laughs> I'm sure at some point. 
they're just latching onto like the dramatic yeah. story. Yeah, they're just true actor. Everyone fashion. says it's that acrobat, but that acrobat died 15 years later in Pennsylvania, so it's probably not him. <laughs> That's so funny. By 1920, Beck continued to add theaters. Orpheum now controlled 45 theaters in 36 cities. After Mayerfield retired in 1920, Beck appointed a new vice president, Marcus Hyman, who loved the new trend of film combined with live performances. Remember we talked about that a little bit last yep. episode? In 1923, Beck retired from the Orpheum in order to work with the theater in New York. I saw some contrary opinions here. Some say that Beck left the Orpheum of his own free will since he didn't like the di direction they were going by adding films. Like he was old school. He only mm -hmm. wanted live performances. Which seems stupid because he appointed the guy who wanted to change it. But, you know, whatever. But others say that he was voted out by the other board members in a sort of, like, mutiny. I can't see Beck ever leaving the Orpheum. Not after all the work he put in and everything that was going yeah. right for him. And the idea of, like, a boardroom coup is way more dramatic and interesting. So I'm choosing to believe that one. <laughs> Either way, he opened the Martin Beck Theater in New York which is now the Al Hirschfield Theater. If he was opening another theater, then yeah, there's no yeah, way he just exactly. left the company that he had all this like exactly. backing with. Yeah, no. But yeah, he opened the Martin Beck Theater in New York, which is now the Al Hirschfield Theater, and it's where Moulin Rouge is currently playing on Broadway. Cool. With vaudeville falling and cinema on the rise, Orpheum merged with the company owned by Keith and Albee in 1927 to become the Keith Albee Orpheum Circuit or KAO for short. In 1928, there was another merger between KAO and RCA to become the Radio Keith Orpheum, RKO, which consisted of the KAO theater chains and also a movie studio that became one of the top studios of the 30s and 40s. I tried to see if RKO was still making movies, and from what I can tell, they, or at least like some version of them, were, but the last one was made in 2015. And the only one that I think you'll know that RKO made was Are We Done Yet? Really? <laughs> yeah, they made Are We Done Yet. That's funny. They didn't make Are We There Yet, but they made Are We Done Yet. That's odd. They did Citizen Kane in 1941, too, which is considered one of the bo best movies of all time. So, I mean, I guess the partnership did all right. All right. They were cool. super successful in the 40s. Martin Beck died in 1940 at the age of 72. I really can't find like any information about what he died from or what he was doing when he died, but yeah, he died. Wow. At least it wasn't an appy that killed him in four days. I tried really hard to find out what happened to the original Orpheum Theater in San Francisco, but it's very difficult to find any info about it. Darn. There's a current Orpheum Theater there, but it wasn't built until 1926, and it opened at the, as the Pantagese Theater. Hmm. So, it, I mean, that wasn't the original one. Gustav had nothing to do with it. It wasn't called the Orpheum until 1929, which was well after the height of the Orpheum Circus popularity. The original Orpheum Theater was damaged by a fire in 1909, but they rebuilt it on the same street just a little ways down. On Google Street View, the address of the rebuilt Orpheum Theater is now a parking garage oh. and a small cafe. The uh, address of the original theater is now a Macy's. Sounds about right. So, oh, how the times change. Yeah, but that's Martin Beck and the Orpheum Circuit. I like it. Yeah, I think it's fun. I think it's fun that, like, there's still ties to the modern day. Like, these theaters yeah. that these guys built over 100 years ago are still showing shows now. That's very special. Yeah, like, we can go see Moulin Rouge in a theater that Martin Beck built. That would be <laughs> or so SpongeBob. cool. Or SpongeBob. <laughs> like, SpongeBob that's so at the palace. 
fun to be able to like go to any of those and look back at all the things mm-hmm. like that have happened in those theaters. That is so cool. That's cool. I um, like art. Go meet a ghost of an acrobat who died in Pennsylvania, but for some reason came back to his theater he worked at for a little bit. I don't know. I mean, Pennsylvania, fancy theater in New York. <laughs> if I had to choose one to haunt, I'd probably <laughs> go haunt a theater. Yeah, I mean, I guess that is like the ideal place to haunt would be a theater. Yeah. All right. So that wraps up vaudeville. I like vaudeville. I think next week we're not talking about any specific music genre. There's just a lot of like little things that we need to wrap up before we wrap up the 1800s. Hodgepodge. So there's like two or three topics that we're just going to like cover briefly that aren't necessarily a music genre, but are very important to music. All right. I can't wait. That's so cool. All right, so that wraps up Vaudeville. That wraps up the Orpheum circuit with Martin Beck. Woo! All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week. Goodbye.